This is the History Tavern Podcast. This is Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. World War II historian Joseph Belkowski wrote, The Omaha Beach landing typified the American World War II experience. A disastrous beginning, during which hundreds of soldiers were slaughtered with shocking ease by an unseen enemy. The swift abandonment of prearranged plans that were not working. A hardening of American resolve that a solution in the crisis must be initiated. A hard fight against resolute enemy soldiers who simply would not quit. An eventual victory followed by exhaustion, grief, and ultimately satisfaction that the task had been achieved despite seemingly insurmountable difficulties. In this episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to Joseph Belkowski about his book, Omaha Beach, D-Day, June 6, 1944. Before we really dive into your book, Omaha Beach, D-Day, June 6, 1944, can you talk about your time living in France, in Colville-sur-Mer, and some of the challenges you faced in terms of trying to uh, making in, in sense in, in, trying to understand the battle uh, you write that civil war battlefields which i'm certainly more familiar with uh, have markers and monuments all over to help make sense of what happened that's not the case in normandy so you can can you talk about your time there and the time you spent on the beach Sure, that's a great question, actually. And of course, you know, as a kid, I started out as a Civil War nut uh, because I was uh, six years old at the time of the beginning of the centennial. And that's really the uh, trigger for my whole career. So, and, you know, I live in the heart of the Civil War country now, so I remain devoted. But yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I lived in Normandy throughout much of the summer of 2001, and at least at that time, it has changed somewhat now, uh, there was not much in the countryside indicating that something of such momentous importance had happened. And Omaha Beach, which is a four or five mile stretch of beautiful coast, had very, very few markers in those days. It had a couple, but... um, Anyway, I, I, was, uh, I was living in Normandy that summer because I was uh, hired to take U.S. Army units on staff rides, or that is, tours of the Normandy battle sites. They'd come in every week from their bases in Germany by bus, and I'd meet them, and we'd spend typically a four-day um, period touring the... Uh, all the battle sites, and of course Omaha Beach was one of the main ones, but not the only one. So for part of that time, half of the time, I lived in the little town of Colville-sur-Mer, which is uh, immediately inland from Omaha Beach and right adjacent to the U.S. cemetery there now. So, yeah, you were very perceptive in your question. You know, it, you know, living in that 
locale, in addition, of course, to doing my job with the Army, was integral for me in, in my writing career because, one, emotionally or spiritually, it completely filled me with the uh, awe uh, that one gets, as you, as you said, from seeing a Civil War battlefield. And, it, it, and of course, it stuck with me uh, and will stick with me until the day I die. But number two, um, you know, I, I had already written a book about the 29th Infantry Division in Normandy, but it always had been in the back of my mind to write a series of books on American involvement on D-Day. It was just a pipe dream at that time, but when I lived in Colville, it was absolutely integral to my writing those books, which now have, of course, been out now for 15 or more years. Um, I could not have written those books without walking every inch of those beaches and becoming familiar uh, with every nook and cranny of the coastline. You know, and not only that, I did it in complete solitude. Uh, you know, back then, uh, although there were clearly were tourists in Normandy, they were a mere fraction of what they are now. And uh, when I wandered the beach, often shortly after dawn, just a short walk from my home in Colville, it was just absolutely inspiring and chilling to uh, know what happened there and then to learn more from having my feet on the ground. You know, you can write a book based on, on archival reports and firsthand accounts, but you know, it's going to be a much, much better book if you, uh, when every time you write a sentence, you picture the ground you walked on and exactly what was happening there on June 6, 1944. I still get chills when I think of that. So I hope that answers sure, your question. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and if, and if you could can talk a little bit more about your approach. And so obviously being there and, 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 and knowing the location and spending all kinds of time there is important. But talk a little bit more about your approach and trying to tell this enormous story and uh, you write about it in your book in terms of trying to, obviously, there's a, a lot of official reports. There's a lot of firsthand uh, uh, sort of uh, recollections. Uh, there's a lot of recollections that come long after D-Day. So can you sort of talk about the value you placed in certain sources in trying to tell the story? You know, that's also another great question because most people don't understand that my approach is actually very different. And maybe that, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that my books are any better than anybody else's, but I know they are different. And the reason they are different is the perfect storm of my life that came together. You know, I already talked about having physically been on the ground. But, you know, since the late 70s and early 80s, I uh, had the incredibly good fortune of befriending the D-Day veterans um, because I lived in a town where there were hundreds and hundreds of them in Baltimore. And, uh, and I was very close to Virginia where there were an equal number. Uh, you know, we, I live in the heart of the 29th Infantry Division territory, which is, uh, you know, one of the main units that landed in the first wave on D-Day. And it was a tremendous blessing to have access to these men 
when they were still young. You know, these men were, you know, probably late 50s, early 60s, although clearly some of the more senior guys were older than that. Uh, but I knew them when they were much younger than I am now. And it was also a good fortune for me because it was really the first time in their lives they had opened up. So stuff came spewing out of their heads, uh, more than I could even keep track of. But, you know, to the gist of your question, uh, I never really enjoyed World War II history books, uh, which were nothing but a recitation of firsthand accounts of people. True, the firsthand accounts were you know, sometimes numbing and, uh, you know, uh, amazing. But I always was frustrated because I never had any context in the large, in the grand scheme of things where those uh, firsthand accounts fit in. And that was the very, very fundamental goal of all my books. And I've written eight books now. Um, uh, so I had the aforementioned great uh, first-hand accounts due to my very fortunate relationship with the men who lived the event. But the key element was that I also had a very close relationship that eventually developed into a full-time occupation over the span of decades with uh, the 29th Infantry Division, and in particular the Maryland National Guard, in an official capacity. And I became the caretaker for all of the division's official records, which, believe me, are so voluminous as to take up a very large room. So my belief in writing my books was that firsthand accounts would only go in the book if 100% or close to 100% were corroborated, but the heart and soul of the book would be the primary source material that really told the story um, uh, in a way that people had not yet uh, read. And, you know, I, again, I don't say my book is any, any better than anybody else's book, but I do say that it was the first time in the historiography of D-Day that people uh, put the official primary accounts from the time side by side with the best of the first-hand recollections and put them together. And uh, to me, that was the general approach I took, uh, not only in my Omaha Beach books and uh, book and Utah Beach book, but the five-volume history I wrote of the 29th Division in World War II as well. So, I, you know, I don't believe just in putting per, a person's recollections down on paper. I have to tell exactly what the war was doing at that time from the large to the small and then put the person's story in the context of that. Again, I hope that answers your question. It certainly does. Uh, th there are a number of uh, facts and figures in your book that, re that really put things in perspective in terms of uh, showing how enormous an undertaking this was, uh, especially in terms of preparation. Uh, I, I think you, uh, by 1940... When the Germans occupy Paris, the U.S. Uh, military or army only numbers 190,000 men, which is uh, less than 
the armies of Sweden, Switzerland, Yugoslavia, Hungary. So and I know that this is a big question, and a lot of these are big questions. This is a big book and a big topic, and we only have a certain amount of time. But can you sort of talk about the enormous undertaking the preparation was? I mean, we're talking years and years. We're talking uh, all kinds of men, all kinds of equipment that has to be generated, and just sort of generally talk about that, what went into that. Well, again, a great question, because as I think I note in the beginning of my Omaha Beach book, in the space of less than four years, we went from a completely unmilitarized nation, not only physically, but spiritually, to the greatest army in the world and one that could pull off a military operation at a scale and a level of skill that was unprecedented. So... You know, to answer your question, you have to look both at, at people and you have to look at uh, the nation as a whole. So realistically, you cannot look answer the question you just asked without bringing up the name George Marshall, the man who basically ran not only the U.S. Army in World War II, but was an integral figure in running all of U.S. grand strategy in World War II and was a man that uh, Franklin Roosevelt completely trusted. And, uh, you know, when you, the more you learn about George Marshall, the more, the more you realize how utterly lucky this nation was to have that man at the helm. He, he, um, he is the mastermind behind the military buildup. You know, as you said, I, I, I thought it was 170,000 men in the army. I could have that wrong, but yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> right. uh, but it, it, we don't need to quibble, but sure. the bottom line is that that number actually also included the Air Force, since the Air Force was part of the army in, in those days. It also included 10,000 Filipino nationals who served only in the Philippines. You know, so it was one, it, for a nation of that size, it was one of the most unmilitarized nations in the world. And George Marshall, I don't have time in this podcast to explain how he did it, but suffice it to say that he did do it. And um, he did it by means that were very sensitive to the democracy that we lived in. Uh, he loved the common soldier. Uh, he knew that the heart and soul of the Army in World War II were going to be citizens first and, and then only hastily trained soldiers. But... He also knew they had to be good and they had to be inspired. And he achieved all of those goals in a remarkably short amount of, tremendously short amount of time. And, um, you know, the success in the grand scheme of American history is just huge. When you think that on June 6, 1944, the Germans occupied all of Western Europe, and on May 8, 1945, Hitler was dead and Germany was demolished beyond recognition. That's the space of 11 months. So the army marshal created, with of course enormous help with our Western allies, Britain and Canada, who shouldered a gigantic burden and an even more gigantic burden on the part of our Soviet allies, when you think of the fact in, in, the, in this cynical age of bringing down the greatest tyrant in world history in, in 11 months, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing. And, uh, you know, you can't discuss that without knowing how Marshall did it. So 
I don't have time to, <laughs> to sure. explain it in detail, but I would suggest that your listeners uh, credit him and look him up and, and, and see what he did. And that's why you have to get the book, uh, Omaha Beach by uh, Joseph Belkowski. Um, so what you mentioned the Western Allies, uh, of course, uh, especially in this part of the discussion, uh, Winston Churchill seems to loom large. Can you can you talk about the um, the sort of some of the difficulties in uh, working together on such an enormous task and the decision making process of uh, invading Normandy, invading that area of you know this massive Atlantic wall defense. Well, another great question, and you know, greatly, greatly misunderstood today. Uh, you know, there have been grossly inaccurate interpretations of Churchill's view of the D-Day invasion, um, uh, and I can get to that in a moment. But you know, in a nutshell, I always tell people that the alliance between the English-speaking Union in the in the Western Hemisphere, you know, America, Canada, and Britain, and of course, supported by many other allies. Uh, that alliance in the grand scheme of history is one is probably the most effective alliance that ever has been, which is not to say that it was not perfect. It was far from perfect, but, uh, uh, results, the results speak volumes. Again, I go back to the 11 month success following D-Day and then the ultimate destruction of Germany. But yes, of course it's true that the American military chiefs and the British military chiefs clashed sometimes very dramatically over the future of the war in Europe. And in, in 1943, when America was beginning to enter the war in force as a junior partner, Britain, through mostly Churchill's views, had a focus on the Mediterranean that made a lot of sense at the time especially as American troops had not been proven yet and their early attempts in battle had not been positive. Um, uh, but again, a very complex subject. In 1943, uh, the, there were heated clashes between British and American military chiefs about what should be done next. And, and, and initially the British typically would win those arguments, but as the Americans became more of a, a more powerful partner and their troops had established themselves, you know, it's, I hate to state it simplistically. They said, yes, we will, we will agree to with you for a Mediterranean strategy for the time being, but only if you agree that ultimately the war will focus primarily and hopefully be won in Northwest Europe, in France and the low countries. And by late 43, you know, somewhat to some disagreement with Churchill, that was the essential agreement. And starting in early 44, it's been completely misstated that Churchill did not support the D-Day invasion. He wants the, the cards were on the table and the commitments were made, uh, you know, Churchill and, and the British military chiefs threw everything behind the invasion to their ultimate power. And I, again, and I'll conclude with what I said at the beginning of this, 
the result is uh, symptomatic of of the greatest alliance in war that we've ever experienced. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we harp on the disagreements, Montgomery and Bradley and Eisenhower, and they were severe. But uh, never before in history had, had armies, very diverse armies, very different cultures and very different uh, military traditions and systems. Never before had they come together for a common purpose and ultimately with such success. So, uh, you know, again, I, so many things in my books, I try to point out the, uh, the lessons of, of, of World War II that are erroneous for many, many people. And, and you know, and, and I and others, of course, have done that. And that, that is one of them. You know, the alliance was overwhelmingly successful and had many hiccups and bumps along the way. But, you know, if it came down to it, that's the way to do it. Right, so I hope right. that right. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you, you spend uh, a, a good amount of time in your book talking about the German preparations and specifically this shift that takes place. Uh, by late 1943, Hitler himself is writing that... Uh, and again, I'll uh, oversimplify this, but I, actually the exact quote is the great danger looms in the West. Um, and so there's a shift in focus to, uh, I think, sort of strengthening the, the Atlantic wall. Um, so can you just sort of talk generally about that shift? And, um, and I think that Rommel even sort of takes, takes over uh, the, the defenses uh, in the West. Yes, I mean, it was not um, difficult for even a military bumbling idiot like Hitler to figure out what was going to happen because you could not hide the arrival of millions of Americans in Britain. I mean, there was only one purpose and one purpose only. If you, if you, for a moment, you don't take into account the Air Force contribution but the, the, the gigantic number of American ground troops that were coming to England were, could only be used for one purpose, and, and, and Hitler was well aware of that. And uh, consequently, I forget the directive that he made, I think it was number 51, uh, his famous Fuhrer directives are the things that made German military policy in World War II. And I should, as an aside, say that this is another reason why we won World War II, because when, a, when the Fuhrer made a directive, you could not counter it unless you risked your life, whereas in the Western powers, you could actually disagree with Roosevelt or Churchill, and you could pound your fist on the table and say that's not the right thing to do. And as I just said, that happened often. Uh, and, you know, consensus among the Western allies, as opposed to the tyranny of German military decision-making, was one of the great <laughs> fundamental reasons why we won. But to get back to your question, um, obviously the main German effort, even after D-Day, was on the, on, the, on the Russian front. But in 1943, the percentage of German troops on the Russian front as opposed to those in the West was very, very high. And by the aforementioned uh, Fuhrer Directive Number 51, Hitler changed that. Uh, 
and he understood that he was going to have to significantly uh, enhance the percentage of men he had deployed in the Western theater. Uh, and as you said, he'd have to put his stellar, if, you know, perhaps overrated, but nevertheless most well-known field commander in charge of it to emphasize to not only men, but the world that, uh, you know, I'm taking this defense of, Europe, of Western Europe seriously. And of course that was Rommel. Um, so, you know, the, the bottom line is that the Germans threw a gigantically higher number of troops into, your, into Western Europe in 44, and secondly, uh, uh, increased the de coastal defenses by a gigantic factor as well. Uh, but, you know, the debate was very real within the German military. Yes, we're going to defend the West, as the Fuhrer had said, but how do we do it? It was thousands of miles of coastline. And Rommel, as you well know, was of the belief that you have your own, their only chance was to stop the Allies at the coast because of their superiority once, uh, you know, they had, had, had established the beachhead and driven inland. But, you know, the Supreme Commander in the West, the Field Marshal von Rundstedt, who, you know, privately snickered at Rommel and said he, you know, the famous military maxim, he who defends everything defends nothing, made a good point. You know, how can we defend thousands of miles of coast when we don't know where they're coming and when they're coming? So therein lies the rub. I mean, the Germans successfully reinforced the Western theater and, and significantly enhanced its defenses. But the Allies' amazing accomplishment, absolutely amazing accomplishment of keeping the time and location of the D-Day assault secret until the very moment it started was the key to success. You know, the Germans couldn't beat that because uh, if they had to cover thousands of miles of coast with a limited number of troops, they couldn't possibly do it if they didn't know where and when the invasion was going to happen. And in a very simplistic sense, that's the building block, the initial building block of the Allies' success on D-Day. So the Germans really couldn't win after that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the challenges the Allies know they face uh, specifically with landing on Omaha Beach geographically, and what are some of the misconceptions the Allies have about the defenses there, uh, which is so interesting, something that I, that I learned reading your book? Well, I'll answer that in a broad sense and then a narrow sense. I mean, number one, in the broad sense, uh, amphibious assaults, uh, clearly were the most difficult military operation and there was really no viable track record of, uh, of, of success. I mean, if you go back to 1915 and World War I, the whole Gallipoli disaster in Turkey, uh, you know, was a strategic uh, uh, abyss that not only led to high casualties and, and, and very flawed uh, invasion planning, but it ultimately did not accomplish anything. 
but even more recent examples, you know, in, in the Pacific and the Mediterranean, um, tar- the invasion of Tarawa in 1943, which was against a relatively small Japanese garrison of a tiny island or atoll that could not really even be reinforced. Uh, with some of the best troops America could offer in World War II was, you know, a, an extremely uh, bloody affair that uh, cost us dearly. Um, and that was only seven or eight months before D-Day. Is, you know, bringing men ashore on an enemy-occupied coast when uh, obviously they're in vulnerable positions, impact into landing craft, um, and the enemy, and particularly in the case of Normandy, had had four years to prepare for their arrival. And more specifically in Normandy, Rommel had had six months to really encourage the defenders to go to their utmost to do everything within their power to stop the Allies on the coastline. I mean, it really dwarfed anything the Japanese had done on Tarawa, and yet the best troops America could offer uh, had a tremendously difficult time neutralizing that atoll. Um, Okay, in a more narrow sense, The five invasion beaches each had very different geographical characteristics, and the two American beaches, Utah and Omaha, were about as different as uh, geologically as you can imagine. You know, uh, Utah is really low sand dunes and a flat kind of floodplain behind the beach, Uh, very little elevation anywhere. Omaha, quite to the opposite, is... um, got steep bluffs and, and in some cases, vertical cliffs immediately behind the beach and only really four major exit points where any wheeled or tracked vehicle could get off the beach. And, um, you know, in, in military science, elevation and height advantage is everything. And uh, coupling the already difficult disadvantages I mentioned of troops coming ashore uh, against prepared enemy defenses packed into landing craft, they're doubly difficult when the enemy is kind of looking down on you from positions that are almost invulnerable. Um, So Omaha was unique among the five beaches in terms of its topography. Um, so much so that that topography, if you look at my Omaha beach book is what drives the subsequent battle that day, the entire plan went out the window because the original plan was that the men would go off the beach through those four exit roads that I mentioned, but ultimately it turned out to be quite the opposite. The only way, uh, off the beach to overcome the fierce enemy resistance was actually going up the bluff which even today a civilian unencumbered by uh, military equipment, and believe me, I've done it, um, would have difficulty doing, not to mention the enemy firing on you, having barbed wire in front of you, having unmarked minefields, and having uh, random artillery fire falling among you, and then, of course, an unseen machine gun position opening up on you just when you least expected it. 
So, in a nutshell, the Omaha Beach invasion uh, was clearly the most risky because uh, not only was the terrain very difficult, but the German defenders were not as numerous as most people think today, but they were of a, they were of a fairly high quality. And, uh, you know, that we were not fighting the supposed, uh, you know, overaged and unenthusiastic, uh, you know, men recovering from wounds on the Russian front. Uh, we were fighting a, in many cases, some fresh young troops in a, in a fresh division that had unexpectedly been in that, uh, area without us really knowing it until the last moment. So anyway, answer to your question is, uh, Omaha beach was the toughest of the five invasion beaches in terms of topography. And believe me, we paid a tremendous price, uh, for that. And also, you know, and I don't know if we'll talk about this later, but the several snafus, in the execution of the plan that prevented the neutralization of those defenders of those German defenders. And, you know, had the plan worked, it wouldn't have mattered who was defending the beach because they were supposed to have been neutralized by air and naval bombardment. But of course it was a complete failure. Yeah. Well, let's, let, let's, let's go right there. And then that, that, in fact, that was going to be my next question. What happened? Obviously that is a big element of this plan. Um, that the the air and naval bombardment was going to soften up these German targets, and uh, you know that there will be craters on the beach. You know you'll be able to march sort of right up, uh, you know, beyond the beach, and that just doesn't happen. What happened with that bombardment? Well, the invasion plan on Omaha was a trade-off between many many critical items, and one of the most important elements of the plan is that we wanted to land as close to dawn as possible so that we could have all of the daylight hours to pour as many troops into the beachhead as we could, knowing that the Germans were going to inevitably counterattack as they did at Salerno, as they did at Anzio, as they did in Sicily. So the fundamental basis of the plan of attacking at dawn limited the naval bombardment to a really essentially a pinprick because, you know, the Navy in those days had to have daylight to hit what it was shooting at. So if you were going to give them daylight and yet begin the invasion and the landing of the troops shortly after dawn, you couldn't really give the Navy much time. And in reality, it was only 30 or 35 minutes, which was uh, woefully inadequate. At, at, at Tarawa, it had been much, much more than that against less robust defenses, and even that didn't do anything. So the naval initial naval bombardment was a pinprick, but what was supposed to have be, been decisive was the application of 400-plus four, B-24 Liberator bombers from the 8th Air Force to um, uh, absolutely saturate that beach with 100-pound uh, and 500-pound bombs. And, you know, a B-24 is a very heavy bomber. It carries a very uh, impressive payload. And when you're talking more than 400 of them, 
uh, it's almost as well, I'll quote general Bradley directly. It's the greatest firepower ever assembled on the face of the earth. And he told the troops that when he was giving them pep talks for the invasion. And he said, as the troops were coming to shore, you're going to see this and quote unquote, you're going to have ringside seats for the greatest show on earth. You know, that's a good pep talk to give. And it, you know, for some young kid who's scared about what he's about to do, uh, Hey, you know, 450 B 24 liberators coming in. <laughs> that's pretty nice. Only problem is again, the practicality of the plan made it very, you know, it made it very, very difficult for the airmen who had to execute that mission. They were given a very short window of time to execute it. And consequently, rather than as some people thought would be more efficient bombing by flying parallel or along the beach, the airmen correctly insisted that if you give us this short window of time, we have to come in perpendicular to the beach. Um, that is at a 90 degree angle. And by doing that, you're risking severely dropping bombs, uh, short and, and, and hitting the waves of invading troops that at that time were only going to be two, three, four miles off the coast. You could have had some of the greatest friendly fire incidents in the history of warfare. And, uh, you know, fundamental problem is that the air people and the ground people did not see things the same way, or I should be more specific about that. The eighth air force people and, and the ground troops did not see things the same way on Utah beach. It was the ninth air force, which was an, an air force organization that was utterly committed to supporting ground troops and had a completely different understanding of what to do. Um, the results were 180 degrees different and successful, but on Omaha beach, uh, you know, I'll cut to the chase, the airmen, uh, having such a short window of time and having such profound fear that they could possibly kill their countrymen with, uh, inadvertent bomb drops. And as you well know, dropping a bomb from 14, 15, 16,000 feet is a, is a very, uh, uh, uncertain endeavor. And, oh, I should tell you the most important thing on, on uh, D day over Omaha beach, the cloud cover was total. So the B-24s were flying literally above ground, above clouds and could not even see the beach. So their, their bombardiers were going to drop the bombs through what was called the, through the cloud radar nicknamed Mickey, I forget the technical name for it, but I do go into it in my book. Um, so they were, you know, correctly concerned that if we drop short, we're going to kill our own people. So someone, no one knows who, it may have been more than one person, gave the order without telling the leaders of the, of the, of the invasion from the sea that we're going to delay the dropping of the bombs. Once the bombardiers reach their dropping point, we're going to delay it anywhere from 15 seconds to 30 seconds. And you know, at the speed of B 24 is flying, when you delay a bomb by 15 or 30 seconds, you know, the plane is, has flown several miles. 
So the bottom line is not a single bomb impacted anywhere on the sand or nearby, and, impact, and they impacted mostly miles behind the coast. And as a consequence, the Germans who were in the foxholes and the bunkers and the pillboxes did not feel the wrath of that so-called greatest firepower in the history of the world. And it was an enormous disappointment to the men. Uh, and, you know, frankly, would have been better had it not happened at all. Um, and consequently, you know, the combination of the weak naval fire and the failure of the air mission meant that the men were coming ashore against an enemy that had not been suppressed as people like Bradley had. You know, let's face it, he kind of promised they would be. Uh, so that is one of the great, you know, it's the fundamental tragedy of Omaha beach, but of course there are many more than that, sure. but that was the fundamental one. Well, what, one of the other ones, which uh, it was another, uh, I think very important element of the plan that did not happen as planned was, well, I'll, I'll just ask you what, what was the idea with the tanks that were going to come ashore? What role were they going to play? What happened? Well, the so-called DD, or which stood for duplex drive tanks, they were a brilliant, brilliant idea. They were a British invention. They were absolutely a phenomenal secret that, uh, you know, the Germans were not aware of. And uh, we had trained in, or at least three of our tank battalions in, in Britain had trained with very, very effectively. But the bottom line was that preceding the initial waves of ground troops ashore, there would be, oh gosh, let's figure it out, somewhere in the range of, oh, I don't know, 80 to 100 tanks that would be uh, uh, coming ashore uh, a, minute, a minute or so before the landing troops. And there's nothing uh, an infantryman likes better than a tank in front of him. And there's nothing an enemy soldier likes less especially if he doesn't have an anti-tank weapon in his hands, then numerous you know, American tanks coming toward you. So um, basically the fundamental principle of the DD tank, and DD, as I said, stood for duplex drive, which means that the tank had a, one means of propulsion on the, on the ocean, that is a propeller, and when you threw a lever, the, it switched the propulsion uh, means to the tracks rather than the propeller. So the tankers were trained to come in, uh, to be taken off their landing ships, their LCTs, which stood for landing craft tanks, oh, I don't know, two miles, three miles offshore, and then use the propeller means of propulsion to spread into a line and and uh, and head ashore immediately in front of the infantry. That was the plan. It didn't work, as with the bombers. The reason it didn't work, and, and it was predictable, the men who trained in these DD tanks said they're magnificent machines and we love them, but their one Achilles heel is that in any even moderate sea state, uh, and certainly the sea state on Omaha Beach on, on uh, D-Day, I believe it was level four, which is, uh, the, I forget the name of that uh, nomenclature, but the, 
the C-State 4 was way higher than DD tanks should have been operating in. You know, any wave of more than three feet uh, risked water coming in over the canvas flotation devices of the tanks. And once water gets inside the flotation devices, the laws of gravity take over and the result is inevitable. So many, many tankers had said, you know, we can't do this if the sea states are at a, at, a, at a certain level or above. And they were. Now, many, many brave men tried to use them anyway with catastrophic results. And many other men said there's no point in trying that. that. And it ended up, nobody knew, of course, but that ended up being the right decision to make. And the tanks were instead brought conventionally to the shore in the LCTs and just they dropped the ramps and they uh, um, used their tracks to proceed onto the beach. So the whole use of tanks in the invasion from the word go was uh, deeply flawed, uh, but that is not to say the tanks did not play a role in the success of the invasion. They did. It's just that the losses suffered by the two tank battalions that were committed were very, very high. And, uh, and not even, not only because of the, the, uh, oppressive sea state, but also because when those that succeeded on getting, uh, to Omaha beach found themselves on the beach, None of those aforementioned exit roads were open, so the tanks could do nothing but uh, stay on a flat beach and try to move around to avoid the uh, German anti-tank guns that could pick them off with no cover. So it was a terrible, terrible situation to be in. But again, you know, uh, the bravery of the men that did the invasion comes out uh, very uh, obviously with those tankers who... Uh, you know, as with everybody who was on Omaha Beach that day, did an amazing, amazing job uh, surviving the flawed plan and then contributing to the ultimate success. Well, let's get to the ultimate success. And I apologize for the the oversimplification here, but I mean, you, you write in your book at 8 a.m., there's a crisis at hand. Uh, the aerial bombardment was ineffective. We just talked about the tanks. Um, there's confusion. Uh, reserve troops are sort of uh, stuck on the beach. What does go right? How how ultimately do they? Is there success? Well, what goes right is, uh, is summarized in a nutshell. It's the training of the American Army that could be summarized in three ways: leadership, uh, morale, and initiative. You know, uh, men at all ranks, from general, namely General Norman Coda, who, uh, uh, of the 29th Division, who was the oldest man on Omaha Beach, but uh, um, uh, walked that beach and uh, exposed himself to death uh, on numerable occasions and uh, urged the men forward, but also leadership at a low level privates and corporals, you know, saying, Hey, you know, you know, we may feel some safety lying on our stomachs behind a wall on this beach, but that doesn't get us anywhere because the Germans are sooner or later going to find us 
and we're either going to die or we're going to be in a prisoner of war camp. So the leadership was number one, you know, morale was number two, you know, the sense that the men who had prepared this at all levels, the infantry, the tankers, the engineers, um, they had been so, uh, magnificently trained that, uh, you know, the concept of defeat didn't, didn't seem possible. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly so because the mental strain was enormous because, you know, you were watching your comrades dead or dying next to you and, uh, something had to be done. And, you know, you know, (laughs) well, I, I forget the quote, a brave man is a man who's too scared to admit that he's, you know, that he's scared, but, you know, so morale is, um, one of the driving forces, but you know, what ultimately happens is that again, from all ranks, private to general, every soldier eventually had to take some form of initiative, uh, you know, get up and put a Bangalore torpedo under a barbed wire coil because there's no way to get off the beach unless you blow a gap through that barbed wire and men who didn't think they had it in them did it. And uh, men died doing it. And, uh, and yet when they did it, it opened up the exit off of that killer beach for others to get off. You know, so frankly, I should also mention a fourth thing. And that was the, you know, I guess it's part of morale really, but the love of your fellow soldier was so uh, profound that it was important that you take care of him and that he take care of you and you're willing to do things to help him and vice versa. And you see that story, uh, carried out, uh, you know, on so many occasions on Omaha beach that they're too numerous to count. And of course I, I, as I said early in this talk, I, I put that, I put those stories in my Omaha beach book, in the book and I put them into the context of the greater picture, which is why when a certain platoon or company could get through the barbed wire in this part of the beach and up the bluffs, why it led to certain successes that day that when put together ultimately, um, uh, took a, what was a disastrous, a catastrophic start to the day, and by nightfall had proven to be, you know, a dramatic success, you know, a success at tremendous physical cost, but, you know, a success nonetheless in which the enemy was completely shattered and the beachhead firmly established beyond any possibility of it being, uh, you know, crushed the next day. Can you talk uh, a little bit just about the night of June 6, 1944 in Normandy for the Allied forces? Um, I think there's a misconception. I mean, you write about it that once the beach was taken, uh, the fighting was over, Uh, but it wasn't. And in fact, um, it was a very nervous night for many of the Allied forces in Normandy. Well, yes. I mean, the night of June 6, of course, for the for the vast bulk of the men, well, very high percentage of the men all across the Normandy front that night, it was their first day in combat. So, I mean, what an introduction to combat, but it was, it was also the the first day of a very, very long war. You know, I mean, the Germans were not dead. Uh, 
And uh, ultimately, you know, you don't win a war by establishing a beachhead. You win a war by breaking out from that beachhead and crushing the enemy army. And the, en and the enemy army was very, very far from being crushed. Indeed, the Germans were moving everything in their power to Normandy by the next day. Um, so the subsequent battle of Normandy, and of course everything that follow, followed it, was very, very brutal, beyond the, beyond the conception of most people today. Uh, in fact, you know, once the Americans pushed inland from Omaha <laughs> and they looked at the terrain around them, this so-called Bocage or Hedgerow country, you know, the next eight weeks of combat were among the most brutal combat in the history of America. I mean, they, they're, for those, since, you know, you're a Civil War nut, you know, the, the over, Grant's Overland Campaign in 1864, which really bled the Army of the Potomac White and, of course, equally devastated Lee's army, uh, but, uh, you know, the subsequent Battle of Normandy is one, is a comparable campaign to the Overland campaign. It was a slugfest uh, in which uh, uh, the battle was almost continuous and the casualties enormous, but as with Grant's campaign, ultimately the enemy had to break. And in Normandy, they broke in, in mid-August, two months after D-Day. But even then, as I said, the war went on until May. But of course, D-Day was the kick, you know, as I often tell people, it was kicking in, a, you know, a door and then beginning the cleaning up of the house. What were the casualties like on D-Day uh, on Omaha Beach? I know I know you write about it. That it's 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 hard. It's a hard thing to calculate exactly. But what were the casualties like? Well, the, the casualties will never be known in their in exactness because, you know, the counting of them was very difficult. The company clerks were still back in England. Uh, and when they finally accounted for casualties, it was very hard to tell when the casualty had occurred. Uh, but I will, I will tell you in a nutshell that the official army count of Omaha casualties was unquestionably low, very, very low. I mean, the accounts were rumored uh, for decades after D-Day to have been in the, I don't know, 2200 to 2600 range. And when you get into the official primary account, as I did, and you do, um, you know, meticulous counting of every unit that accounted for its casualties, it's very obvious that at a minimum, the casualties were twice what the, or close to twice what the army had originally said, probably in the 4,700 to 4,800 range for, you know, an 18 hour period of whom, a, you know, a very large percentage of men died, a much higher percentage of deaths in combat as opposed to wounds compared to uh, an ordinary inland uh, battle in which the wounded had a much higher percentage uh, than those killed. I, you know, close, I'd say 1,800 or more men died in the Omaha Beach invasion, and something in the range of 3,000 were, were injured or wounded in some capacity. And, of course, of the 1,800 who were lost, many bodies were never found. They were lost at sea. Um, so, you know, that casualty count is extraordinary. 
Uh, and in, in fact, you know, some people debate even today, the highest casualty or, well, maybe death count is more accurate. The highest daily death count in World War II is still argued today. It was either Pearl Harbor or it was D-Day, for Americans I'm speaking. Right, right. Uh, frankly, even though I'm a D-Day historian, I do believe the Pearl Harbor count was actually higher than the D-Day account, but they're very, very close. And in either case, they're appallingly high. Joseph Belkowski, the author of Omaha Beach D-Day, June 6, 1944, also the author of several other very good books. Uh, I will put a link to, to those books and uh, Joe's website below the podcast. Joe, I want to thank you so much for doing this on D-Day Week. I really appreciate your time. Okay, you're welcome. Been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast. And thank you to Joseph Belkowski. You can follow this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook.